Thank you. You may be seated. And a good morning to all. Normally at this time, I would ask you to find your notes that you find there in your bulletin material and, and open those up. I'm going to, if you still would like to do that, that's fine. But I'm going to ask you not to do that for your own good because it's very extensive, as you can see. And it is essentially <clears throat> a manuscript of or a te the text of my sermon this morning and a lot of other material as well. And so if you try to follow that, I'm, I'm afraid that uh, it'll, it'll be rather confusing. But what I would suggest is that you really just put your ears on this morning and listen carefully, and, and then you can go home and go back through, and I think that that will uh, be very helpful to you. Well, it's uh, just been a little over a week since our OT Live event, and one of the things as I've reflected upon it about its usefulness, somebody asked me earlier if I thought it was very helpful. It, it was indeed, I think, to many of us. And what it helped us to see is that the Old Testament, three-fourths of the Bible, is one story. And, and if that's all you got, and I suspect it's not, but that, that would be awesome. Even from the time, even though from the time of Abraham, which is a span of some 2,000 years of human history, and even though it's a story told by over 30 writers that we know of, all those stories and events are really one story. You know what else? That story continues, and we call that the New Testament. So indeed, the Bible is one story. So what is this story? Well, I can tell you this story in three words, four syllables. God saves sinners. That's the story of the Bible. That's what the entire book is about. I can even say it in one word. It's the word salvation. Now, salvation is always from something, isn't it? If someone saves your life, you say, well, they saved me from death. If a baseball player makes a game-saving catch, he saves his team from defeat. Well, when I speak of salvation this morning, I'm speaking of how God saves us from the consequences of our sin, that is, our rebellion against him. And it all begins in paradise, in the Garden of Eden, where God creates Adam and Eve, who unlike all the other creatures that he creates, bear their creator's image so that they can live in harmony and fellowship with God himself. The one thing that God told them not to do, they did. Despite God's warning that to do so would mean spiritual death immediately, separation from God, and eventually their physical deaths as well. But believing Satan's lies, namely that God had lied to them, they disobeyed and found themselves running and hiding from God. As if we can run and hide from God. And what does God do? Well, God seeks them. He pursues them. And when he finds them, he covers their shame, covers their nakedness. He pronounces judgment, banishing them from paradise to live in a world fallen from grace, under sin's curse, among those who will also inherit that fallenness that tendency to sin. But then God does something else. In speaking to Satan, the enemy, he promises that one of Eve's descendants, mind you, not Adam and Eve's, not Adam's, but one of Eve's descendants, who was described in Genesis 3.15 as the seed of the woman. That's a very strange and curious way to put it. But that this one, one day, will crush Satan, fatally wounding him in the head, but will himself be wounded in the process. And, of course, this is God's promise of a Savior, 
a deliverer, whom the New Testament reveals as, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. As when the angel tells Joseph, call his name Jesus, which means the Lord saves because he will deliver his people from their sins. And we call him in the New Testament, he is known as the second Adam. And you will see a section in your notes on that. I encourage you to look at that later. It's helpful to think of our salvation as occurring in three tenses, past, present, and future. In the past tense, this is what the Bible calls justification. To be justified in the New Testament Greek language means to be declared righteous. Now, when we see the courtroom dramas, and perhaps you've, you've, you've been in juries and so forth like that, we all know, what, what does the jury say? Does the jury say you're, you're a good person? Does the jury say you didn't do it or that you're innocent? No. What does the jury come back and say? Not what? Not guilty. That's a big difference than saying we don't think you, that you didn't do it or that you are innocent. That's not what they're saying. But thankfully, as justified sinners, we are not simply not guilty. We have been positively declared righteous, and thus we have been saved from sin's penalty. So, next time someone asks you, when were you saved, brother? When were you saved, sister? You know what you could tell them? You could tell them what I tell them. About 2,000 years ago, outside of Jerusalem on a Roman cross where Jesus died for my sins, that's where he cried out, it is finished, meaning what? The payment is made. We are justified. Then there's the future tense of our salvation, which is described in the New Testament by the term glorification. Uh, St. Paul, writing to the church at Philippi, says this, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. And when is that completion? At the day of Jesus Christ. What day is that? Well, that's Resurrection Day. It's also Judgment Day, the last day. Or as St. John puts it, when he appears, we shall be like him. Isn't that great news? That one day, God is going to transform us into the very image of Jesus Christ from top to bottom. This morning, I want us to focus on the present tense of our salvation. That we call sanctification. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14. Peter says this, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now let me be very clear. This is not speaking of working for our salvation. No, it is the working out of the salvation that is, in fact, ours. But our epistle reading that we just heard from James chapter 2 seems to say otherwise, doesn't it? I hope you caught that reading again. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed, be filled, God bless you, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now, I'm not going to dwell on this passage, but Please note this, James is not making a case for faith plus works, but rather for a genuine faith that works. A faith that manifests itself in a change of life, which is a lifelong process in which we become more and more like Jesus, and that's sanctification. James is also not saying, well, 
God does his part, but we got to do our part. That's not the way salvation works. Or that we are somehow proving our faith by our works. There are people that do all kinds of good things that, that do not know Jesus whatsoever. But rather, that real faith manifests itself in action. That's the point. But, maybe some of you are thinking, oh, come on, preacher. I mean, and can, can we really and truly become like Jesus? I mean, can we really? Debbie and I will never forget when our oldest daughter, Lisa, was about two years old. We'd been to church, stopped at a restaurant, sitting in the booth, and in come this couple, we barely noticed them, uh, and the man had a full beard, which in the mid-70s was not as common as it is today. And I, I wish I had a, a picture of this, but the look on Lisa's face, when, when she saw this man, her eyes got big and her face lit up, and she pointed to him and said, There's Jesus! There's Jesus! And she was so excited. It was the look of recognition in her eyes. And of course, that sent us just into fits of laughter. We, we, we sat there and laughed uncontrollably. Well, the couple sat down right behind us. <laughs> and so we, Debbie, I guess, figuring that, well, they needed maybe some explanation of why their presence created such, such uh, laughter in this. And so she told the, the wife what Lisa had said. To which the woman replied, well, I assure you, he's not. <laughs> well, that may very well have been the case. <laughs> Nevertheless, we can become like Jesus in the totality of our being. St. Paul's benediction says this in Thessalonians. Here's what he told them. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I'll be the first to admit to you, that's a pretty tall order. And if you don't think it is, then you, you haven't really taken that seriously. But what I'm afraid of is that many Christians just say, oh, that's just not realistic. And so they're content just to slap a, Christians are not perfect, just forgive a bumper sticker on their car and settle for a mediocre Christian experience. That's where I really believe a lot of, Christians are these days. Can we become like Jesus in our character, which is what we are, and our conduct and our actions, which follow? In other words, can we live as Jesus did in every aspect of our lives? Yes, we can. Now, there's no pep talk coming up at this point. <laughs> Thankfully, this is not something we achieve in our own strength and power. Let me explain. It all begins with our baptism. Baptism, as we know, is the sacrament of death and resurrection. Paul puts it this way in Romans 6, uh, verse 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now, this is not just some figure of speech. At baptism, you died, and you were born again. That's why Jesus says to Nicodemus, in order to see heaven, in order to, to live eternally, we have to be born of water and of spirit. It's a spiritual reality. And it means this for our practical lives, that God provides the power, the juice, if you will, to transform our lives. And beloved, that's why he gets the glory. And that we can only say with Paul, as he said to the Corinthians, by the grace of God, I am what I am. 
And he goes on to say, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, Paul says what? I worked harder than them all. But then he adds, but though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. I call this a grace sandwich. A grace sandwich. Our hard work between two slices of God's grace. Because from start to finish it is, but it doesn't happen apart from us either, apart from our efforts. All right, preacher, so how do we tap into that? Well, Jesus said in John chapter 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Well, where does the life of the branch come from? It comes from the vine. We lived for many years uh, in Florida in a farming community, lots of growing stuff. And, and I'm by no means a, uh, know anything practically about agricultural science. I, things die that I plant is, is the truth of the matter. But I know that left to themselves, those beautiful fields full of fruit and vegetables and all that stuff never produce produce. It just doesn't happen. The insects, disease, weather, all those things ultimately went out unless the farmer works to cultivate the field. Now again, it's not the farmer making it grow, but it's the farmer creating an environment where the good stuff will survive and thrive and produce fruit. Healthy plants produce fruit, and so do healthy Christians. And that's why Paul says in Galatians 5.22 that the works of the flesh, meaning our natural self, the bad stuff are things like anger, jealousy, strife, sexual impurity, and etc. But he goes on to say, but the fruit, the fruit of the Spirit is these wonderful qualities. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Aren't those great qualities? Don't you admire those in others? Yeah. And you see the opposite of it. We see the opposite. Well, this is how we grow. It is not something that we do. It is not so much do, doing, 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 but it is, it is becoming. It is becoming the kind of person that the Holy Spirit transforms us into, namely the very image of Christ. And so that these traits become what we are, not just something we do. Jesus was the most human human ever to walk the planet. Do you realize that? Jesus was not some extraterrestrial who somehow came down here and lived this unreal life. No, he embodied all those things that I just mentioned and more, all that we were meant to be. And that is why people were drawn to him. They loved him. Yes, he was a man of sorrows, but he also had great joy. And do you know how I know that? Because children loved him. Children don't like grouchy, grumpy people. You know that. No, they just, they, they just, no. It's like they're allergic to that. They, they know. So Jesus had all those wonderful qualities that he embodied. But even his enemies hated him without cause. You say, yeah, but that's because, as Jesus put it, they hated God. <laughs> so naturally they hated him. And all that he did, loving others, bringing healing, speaking the truth, even to those who didn't want to face the truth, came from within. And there were no ulterior motives. There was no hidden agenda, no pretense. It all seemed so effortless and so natural. And why is that? Because all of this came from inside, from who he really was. In other words, he was always himself. 
John says of Jesus, he was full of grace and truth. So when, you're, when that's true, you can just be yourself. And the same can be true of us. Listen to his words in John chapter 7. Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart, his innermost, truest being will flow rivers of living water. And in a dry and parched and desert-like climate, that idea would, would even ring more solidly with them. Now this, he said, about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. Okay, so how do we cultivate all this in our lives? How do we abide in Jesus? Well, like St. Paul said, we work at it. Like those farmers I knew in Florida, they worked the fields. Is it easy? No, it's not. But God has given us tools, and with the right tools and knowing how to use them, we can do this. And you'll see in your notes, I have a section on ordinary, ordinary means of grace. The ordinary means of grace are things like worship, what we're doing today, private and corporate, prayer, Bible reading and study, fellowship with other believers, service to others. But please hear me on this. These are not hoops to be jumped through. These are not things to put on your checkoff list of things to do. And then, okay, I do these things and God will make me into this person. No, these are the means by which God feeds our souls and how we exercise our spiritual muscles and cultivate character, our inner self. They are the actions that connect us to the source of strength and the power and the source of life in the Spirit, namely the Spirit of Christ. Hence the title of this sermon, Putting Ourselves in the Line of Fire. I'm not speaking of enemy fire this morning. I'm speaking of the refiner's fire, the fire of the Holy Spirit. And it's not in the mere doing of these things that we become Christ-like. Perhaps you came here this morning and, okay, i got to go to church. I'm supposed to be here. And you're here and you're thinking about your to-do list. And you're thinking about the things that you've got to do next week. And you're going on a trip and all these other things. That's why these are called means of grace. They're not ends in themselves. And I'm, th I'm thinking that some of you are thinking, great, more stuff to add to my to-do list, all this stuff, right? No, the life that Jesus offers is expressed beautifully in Matthew chapter 11 where he says, Come to me, all you who are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you more to do. <laughs> no. He says, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. My burden is light. And he knows how to make it that way when we are right within and the things that we do express that rightness. The ordinary means of grace put us in a place where God will meet us and work in our lives. That's their value. Remember Zacchaeus? Great story, isn't it? Why did he put his dignity aside that day and climb up in a tree? Why did he do that? I, I, I would love to have seen that scene. I'm sure that, that those around him probably laughed and mocked him and made fun of him and thought how silly he must have looked. Well, he didn't want to miss Jesus for some reason. And he put himself in the Lord's line of fire. And Jesus called him out and invited himself to lunch and introduced him to a whole new way of life and transformed this man from a greedy crook who stole from his own people to an honest and generous child of God. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house since he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And this, by the way, illustrates James's point in James chapter 2, does it not? 
How did Jesus know? How could Jesus know and proclaim to others that Zacchaeus was truly saved? Because he saw the proof of it in, in, his, in giving away the lion's share of his, of his fortunes. And then you'll also notice in your notes the spiritual disciplines. And, and I, I don't have time to even mention those. But the spiritual disciplines were many ancient practices that somehow wound up being mostly done in monasteries and places like that. They are experiencing a bit of a revival. And, but the disciplines are there, again, to help strengthen us. They're not ends in themselves. Ask yourself this question this morning. What are you good at? Ask yourself, what am I good at? I should say. You a golfer? You pretty good at it? Maybe you're a really good cook. Maybe you play musical instrument. Or you sing. Or some other, some other thing you enjoy doing. How did you get good? You just born knowing how to do that? Just natural talent? No. No, you got good at it by practicing. And I know how good you are. You know how good you are? You're as good as you deserve to be. Just like me. I play the guitar. And people say, are you any good? I'm as good as I deserve to be. To the extent that I practice and work at it, I get better. And to the extent that I don't, then I don't. Well, you're probably going to need some help with that, so I've recommended two books in there, and I'm not trying to hawk anybody's books or anything like that. Uh, he's, one guy's in his 80s now, and another guy's with the Lord. But, but those things will help you in that. And, and I'll leave that with you today. Go do your homework this week, okay? <laughs> read the notes and check it out. In closing, I want to read Paul's words. To his young son in the faith, Timothy, listen carefully. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself, he says, train yourself for godliness. Go into training. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds the promise for the present life, how we live today, and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, for to this end we toil and strive. That sounds like hard work, doesn't it? Because we have our hopes set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Does this sound good to you? Maybe you're kind of stuck in your walk, Maybe you're stagnant. Maybe you're going in the wrong direction. I want us to, to do a prayer this morning. I haven't used the overhead. Can we have that slide? Can we have the slide, please? There we are. Uh, that, of course, you recognize the bottom line from Charles Wesley's great Christmas carol, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. But that's actually a prayer. And, and if you, if you want to pray this in your heart, if you want to pray, pray it aloud, do as, as God leads you. Uh, we're not going to orchestrated or anything like that in an organized thing. But let this be your prayer, if, if what I've said this morning rings with you. Adam's likeness, Lord, efface. Stamp thine image in its place. Second Adam from above, reinstate us in thy love. Let us thee, though lost, regain. Thee, the life, the inner man. O oh, to all thyself impart formed in each believing heart. Hark, the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. And beloved, God can and will do this for every one of us. I don't care if you're 9 or 90. I don't care if you've been a Christian virtually your whole life or if you're new to the faith.
But I can tell you this, he won't do it in a vacuum. And he will do it only as we, like Zacchaeus, by faith, put ourselves in the line of fire.